Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. Hi, can you hear me okay? I sure can. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you great. Perfect. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm good, all right. good. Thank you so much for hopping on TPQ20 with me. I really appreciate that. Of course. Um, I've, been a, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I've, I've been teaching for about 20 years. And uh, about uh, 2008, 2009, my students uh, kind of challenged me to uh, prove the relevancy of poetry in the 21st century. So uh, we got really into like brave new voices at that time. Um, and that was kind of a, like an early entry for a lot of my students into the world of poetry. Uh, and so um, there was really, it was a really cool entryway into that. So I've been kind of following your career for quite a while now. Um, we always like to start off on TPQ20 saying that we know who you are, but our audience may be new to you. So if you were to kind of give the bio that your publicist doesn't have, uh, who would you say you are? Yeah, I would say, uh, well, one, thank you for that. It's always an honor to have the work shared with students. I would say I'm Latoya's little brother, Levi's big brother. I'm a child of Yonkers, New York, and the Bronx. I'm August's dad and Pam's husband now. I'm a writer. What else? Freestyle MC as a younger man. Uh, and now I'm a professor of English, you know, and I have the singular joy of getting to work with um, rooms full of incredibly brilliant, dynamic young people. Um, and I get to share, you know, the wonders of this poetic tradition we share with them. And that's one of the great joys of my life. Nice. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to intro yourself. Uh, I will say congratulations on a, on a nice family. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> cool. I never hear, we never hear names of anybody else as my, as my dog enters the room down here. Oh, that's here great. Barking. We've got a 120 pound sheep a doodle. Uh, yeah, he is a, he's a big dude. Big boy, yeah. <laughs> so, he never really makes it in this room. So that's interesting. So um, you had a pretty early start to your poetry career. Uh, what was sure. the, what was your early catalyst? Was there, you know, something you were read as a kid or, or an author that you, you know, that you stumbled upon? What was kind of that first, that first sense that, you know, <laughs> writing was kind of fun or that poetry was kind of fun? It's mm, a great question. Yeah, I was always surrounded by poetry. You know, it found me. I was raised in the Black Baptist and Pentecostal church. And so I was just always around ministers. I was around preaching. I was around the kind of epic poetry that came from the pulpit and inspired people to do everything from, you know, cartwheels down the aisles to, you know, pass out, cry, yell, run. And I just thought, wow, if language can do that, then I better learn about it. I better learn how to not necessarily master it, but just tap into it, learn its contours, understand it better. So that was one kind of poetry I was raised around. And then I also went to, you know, this small black independent school in Harlem called the Modern School, which was founded by a woman named Mildred Johnson, whose father and uncle, you know, uh, John Rosamond Johnson um, and James Walden Johnson, they wrote the black national anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. So that was the first national anthem I ever knew. You know, right. before the Star Spangled Banner, we sang Lift Every Voice and Sing every morning. We uh, read and memorized poetry. And then my sister had Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman taped to the front of her bedroom door. So I walked past poetry on the way to school every day. So I was just steeped in it, man. You know, from, from the very beginning. 
And so, yeah, my career started from the time I was four years old, you know, writing poetry and made notebooks I got from the 99 cent store. And my mom still has a lot of those poems. So it's been a family business for a long time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, the, I can I can just imagine the four-year-old you scribbling down something inside a notebook. Now, the question is, do you remember any of those four-year-old lines or titles? I don't. Titles are always fun. I'm not going to lie. I, the earliest poem whose title I can remember is a uh, Hope and Love okay. when I was in sixth grade and I, I wrote it on uh, poems.com. Yeah. And I oh, memorized man. it. Poems.com. Yeah. That's, yeah. that is not something I have thought about in a long time. Yeah. Yes. The original, you know, that original wow. archive. And so, yeah, I, I performed it, you know, in front of my colleagues. It was good. It was a good time. That's awesome. So, then you get toward the you know the brave new voices segment of your you know your early career right and i think the the bigger question is who are who were you then versus who are you now you have a, a brand new book coming out so what you know are you the poet that you expected yourself to be at hmm. this point in your life that's a great question no not in any meaningful way really <laughs> I, I didn't ever think I would write books you know yeah. poetry on the page I mean just wasn't all that interesting to me I mean even the examples I've given just now right I mean the poems we read at least to my mind we read primarily to perform them right poetry was read to be memorized mm -hmm. the idea that I would one day be someone who composed collections that you could just sit and read in silence if you told that to 18-year-old Josh, <laughs> I would have been baffled by that. <laughs> like, dude, yeah. what are you doing, right? Compose for the stage. You should be, you know, with Def Jam or something. At the, how old are you? You're 34. You don't have a record deal. Like, are you touring still? And I'm still touring. I still do spoken right. word. It's great. But I think I would have been shocked um, if I told my, you know, my younger self would have been shocked, I think, by the idea that I did eventually find a way to bring that tradition that raised me in conversation with this other tradition that I honestly largely learned in graduate school. It wasn't until I got to Princeton and just sat in Firestone Library, going through the stacks, reading contemporary poetry, that I learned how poetry could move on the page, that I, you know, studied, you know, pantoons and sestinas for the first time. I mean, that I'm a self-taught, you know, poet on the page. Yeah. I don't have an MFA. Um, and so I used that time getting the PhD in English to also teach myself this other craft. So yeah, Brave New Voices time, that, that guy was completely different, wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, I had a very different sense of where my life would end up. So uh, I think that's, that's fun. I can actually, I can see that pathway for that, that version of you as like that orator, that person who is going to stand in a courtroom. That right. Makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I just showed my, uh, we do a daily poem for my, I teach seventh grade and we do a daily mm -hmm. poem and um, it's a spoken word poem every day. Uh, and we just did uh, one of yours from your White House performance. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, I guess I, I, I would be remiss not to ask how, how on earth did you manage to stand on stage? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, di that's a different direction than I thought the question yeah, was going to be. Like um, the anxiety in the room. Um, yeah that must have been a very different type of performance than you experienced, I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah, it was intense. I mean, the thing I will say is the reps helped a lot. I mean, it was great that I'd done hundreds of performances to that point, because I literally can't imagine being able to push through it all without that experience. But you also got to remember my plus one was my mom, right? So before I went on stage, my mom was actually backstage with me. You know, we stood in front of the bathroom and she just ran the poem, you know. Um, yeah. 
together. And uh, that was an incredible week for me and my mom. I mean, we, so that black suit and silver tie that I had on took me to get it at the Cross County Mall in Yonkers, New York. Uh, We went, you know, we got it off the rack together. And I think, you know, I joked earlier about it being a business, but poetry really has always been a kind of family endeavor for me. So uh, yeah, the anxiety was quite high, but you know, my mom was front and center next to Joe Biden, about, you know, two or three seats over from the president and the first lady. And I just felt, I closed my eyes, you know, and I thought of my big sister. I, I thought of those moments that I recorded in that poem. And I just tried to be as present as possible. And I'm, I'm really thankful um, that it worked out. I mean, my career, I think, really took off in a bunch of different ways after that house performance. So. Yeah, because I mean, because that's what 2009. So you weren't yeah. too far removed from the Brave New Voices you either. So, yeah, I mean, did that did that kind of was that kind of that changing point then where you thought maybe not lawyer, maybe maybe, you know, poet or something yeah. similar? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, so also you got to remember both of those um, events, those cinematic events had the same producer. So Stan Latham both produced Brave New Voices and he produced you know, that that evening at the, the White House. And he invited me, you know, to the White House right. after seeing Brave New Voices and also um, the NAACP Image Awards that year. He invited me to perform there with Ben Aliswag and George Watsky. So it, it had just been, you know, a banner year in that regard. And uh, yeah, I mean, that really was a turning point for me in all sorts of ways. I already had a sense that I definitely wanted to be a professor as well. I didn't know if maybe I could be both like a lawyer and a professor. Um, so I knew academia was something I wanted to pursue, but it was after the White House that I thought this could be a, a full-time gig. Like this can be something that maybe I take on the road. And part of where that came from was just my friends who confessed to me for the first time that they were doing shows and getting paid, which <laughs> had not really occurred to me that you could do a show. Now, were, in, they, were they in music or were they in poetry? No, they were in poetry. These oh, were speaking word poet. Yeah, dude. Well, so some of the people who... Come on, man. So they were in the documentary with me, but I mean, these were, they're sharp cats, man. And they were like, oh yeah, I'm doing college shows. I'm on tour. I said, what is a college show? What do you even get up and do? Getting on that NACA book. NACA, precisely. So you know. Oh yeah, I've been doing music for almost 30 years now. So that that NACA, oh, you get on that NACA tour book. Oh, that's money for days. Like, yeah, yeah, what a great, like it's a built-in audience every day of the week. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, and I live out in the Pacific Northwest. So out here, it's just, you know, and you lived in New York. So like there are just colleges on every corner. Everywhere. So, oh, yeah. And I did NACA eventually. So when I got that news, you know, my friend's like, oh, you should get an agent. So I started working with Shihan, the poet who ran an agency called DPL Productions. And so I worked with him for a while. And then eventually after, um, so that was in 2009 when I performed at the White House, okay. started doing some college shows, graduated from Penn in 2010, won this fellowship called the Marshall Scholarship, went to study in England. And while I was in England, my sister and I, we decided to build this company called the Strivers Row, which would essentially yep. be a management company for you know poets and musicians. Yep. And uh, that's when the touring really kicked into high gear. I mean, after that, that plus like the NACA experience I already had, we were just touring around the clock and you know, everything changed. We're able to build the audience uh, via, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the whole thing. Now, was there ever a time where you felt like maybe poetry would become music for you? And maybe, I mean, that maybe you would become an MC rather than a poet? 
It's a great question. So I was in talks for a record deal, actually, um, before I started at Princeton. And uh, man, I, my mom, her teachings, I guess, really stuck. Because at the time when I'm in this office with this exec, I was like, look, I really think I need to take being a graduate student seriously. That's what I seen in 2011. My sense was just that I wanted to be sure that I had health insurance. That was one. <laughs> and two, you know, my mom really did always impress this upon me and I'm thankful for it. She said, you always need to have a way to keep the lights on. Because I've always been someone who wanted a, a family. You know, I was five years old. You asked me what I wanted to be. I would say, I want to be a paleontologist and I want to be a dad. That's what I would have said, you know, as, as a five-year-old. And so my mom was like, if that's really what you want to do, you know, make sure you have a plan A, plan B, and I'll support you in the poetry stuff as long as you have the, the day job. And so, yeah, I mean, hip hop is, you know, it's one of my great loves. It was contraband in my house. I wasn't allowed to listen to it. So I would pay my friend Vince, you know, five, shout out to Vincent. I would pay him $5 and he would go on LimeWire or Kazai and he yeah. would just bring us mixtapes, you know, and that was the business he ran out of uh, our seventh and eighth grade classrooms. And that's where I found, you know, Big L. That's where I found Biggie and Pac and Jay. And I would sneak into the basement and I will listen to these records over and over. And eventually I talk about this in the new book on spoken word, but, you know, the first time I ever went to the village, you know, was to get a Joel Santana album from me to you. And that was my first CD, you know? And the second time I went downtown was to go to the New Eurekan Poets Cafe and perform in my first slam as a teenager. So it's always been connected, hip hop and my spoken word journey. That's awesome. Now I got to ask that to New York. And do you remember who you performed with that first night? I know Jive Poetic was the host. I remember that. Right. And it was the quarterfinals for the Urban Word Citywide Youth Slam. Okay. So it was really just me and a bunch of other teenagers, you know, and then I made it to semis, made it to final stage. And I made the team that year, that Urban Word team. Um, the year before I got on the Philly team that won the whole thing at Brave New Voices, which was the year before we were on the documentary Brave New Voices. So I did Brave New Voices three times uh, when I was 17, 18 and 19. That's awesome. Have you ever like I know in Portland, they have Verslandia. So which is, they've done a pretty decent job with of, of bringing in all the Portland high schools. Um, and I wish they could, I, it's been my dream to start a middle school version of it, but it's, it's, there's so many moving parts in there and they do such a great job of bringing in different teams and it's, it's treated like a brave new voices. It, oh, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's been going for, I think it's like five or six years old now. Um, I know they've had like a, Alex Dang has been a judge. Um, I, not sure who else is uh, who's been out there, but it's been a it's been a really cool program because um, I think there is a there is a is a really cool new generation of of young poets out there hmm. um, who didn't know that poetry could be like that. Hmm. Um, you know, like for my students, they definitely you know I started day one. Um, you know, I started it came out day one. I don't remember what the daily poem was, but they're looking at me like this is poetry, like that guy's on stage. Like yeah. isn't he just a rapper? Mm. Like and that's and so it's been interesting to follow, you know, we're at now like day forty seven or forty eight. And so they've had now forty eight new experiences every day. Right. Um and, and what's awesome is it's mostly new people. Like that's there's great. so much spoken. We're out there like YouTube is, is definitely, I mean, it, it opened up the world. I mean, I'll always say my, the first assignment I really gave like this to when I taught high school was I had my students just kind of go to YouTube and click button poetry and yeah. just watch the, like the expansion from that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, 
you know, it's it's incredible to know that there's always going to be a voice that sounds like, looks like, feels like one of those students in that chair. Mm. And on any given day, they're going to come up with something awesome. I had a student the other day write a poem called Costco Hot Dogs. Um, but Good it was a, the, the cadences and the syllable counts and everything was just, he's never written a poem before. But he wrote this great rhyming, like an ABAB rhyming poem about Costco hot dogs. And like, I brought it, like, I looked at him, I was like, I really want to tell you that this could, like, I could make changes to this. Mm. But it's fun. Like, and so, and, but it's, there's a difference between, you know, it's not just an acrostic going down the side of the page. They're yeah. learning to do something that they can actually just speak from the heart. Yeah. Sometimes it works that way. Yeah. Now, you said something earlier about, like, um, you know, you never thought that you would write just on the page. Mm -hmm. How is your process for that? Is it different when you are writing a piece that you know is going to be built for performance versus something that might only ever be read? Yeah, that's a great question. It is different for me. It feels like a different part of my brain when I write for the stage. And I'm thankful for that, you know, because I also am writing in a lot of different genres now, because as a professor, yeah. sometimes I'm writing lectures. Sometimes I'm writing speeches, like graduation speeches is a, is a genre that, you know, I gave the graduation speech at Penn. And since then I've written, you know, multiple graduation speeches, which really does live in the kind of, you know, space between a spoken word poem and something like a lecture. And so, yeah, it's, it's a radically different process for me in certain ways, um, but I'm still always trying to start with the beautiful image, the beautiful sound, the beautiful story. Um, I root myself really in events often that I've witnessed or something beautiful that I've read or overheard, you know, on a bus while on a walk, something I've noticed. I mean, my my son being born made me a nature poet, for instance, right? because I'm trying to teach him the names of all the birds and the trees, and fruits and the flowers we're seeing. And it, it, I don't know, just looking at books of weeds and discovering these names, jungle rice, mare's tail, velvet leaf, fillery. It's, it felt magical to me. Yeah. And so it made me think differently about these non-human forms of life that I was around all the time. And so, yeah, my process has changed a million times. I'm shocked at the fact that I think more about performance now than I have at almost any time over the past, you know, five to seven years. And it's because I'm working with middle school students again and high school students. So I'm a a writer in residence at these two local schools, these two local independent schools. And I'm working with, you know, kids as young as 11, as old as, as 17 or 18. And part of what that means is I have to tap into what you're helping your students tap into, which is their natural voice. Yeah. Right? Being able to get on stage in front of a microphone and just crush it. No drums, no backing instrumental. You don't know me, right? <laughs> I'm up here and I have to convince you to pay attention for the next 45 minutes with the things I say. And spoken word is just, it's undefeated in that regard. The best spoken word poet, Saul Williams, you could put Saul Williams in front of 40,000 people at Madison oh, Square Garden or 30 silent. people at a cafe. He'll crush it. Oh, God. Yeah. That's, yeah, watching, I mean, watching Coded Language, the Saul Williams. Language. Oh, that's the one with the scroll. Yeah, and, and, and you could have the students who hate everything about, who tell you they hate everything about words. And they will watch that a thousand times yeah. because you have to. It's yep. just, it's truly, I, I don't know that there's a, like a more marquee piece of, of spoken word from that Def Jam era. Yeah. That really, true. that really is amazing. Yeah. Him and Sonny are great for that. Mm. I don't know if you know Sonny Patterson stuff, but I'll play 
we not. know his place. Oh yeah, Sonny Patterson is amazing. Okay. All right. But her, I play her stuff and I play Saw stuff. I'm like, look, you think you don't like poetry? You think you don't <laughs> like performance? You think it's corny or whatever? Boom, watch this. And it, it just cuts right through um, what I think is often, honestly, an anxiety around vulnerability. Yeah, oh yeah. And looking silly, embarrassing yourself, getting secondhand embarrassment, you know, from your classmates and wanting to leave the space. And I think spoken I, word, it, it forces you to give an account, you know? Well, and I think too, we're in a, in a like with that, with that exact thing, we're in a, a really cool space where, um, you know, where my kids who are the most anxious, I can say, you know, create a video, create, you know, what would this look like on TikTok? Yeah, you, know, you get, you know, because I do the same, you've got up to three minutes, you know, we, we go by by the rules. That's and great. So like, what can you do in three minutes? You know, yes. if you don't want to stand up here and, and perform, you know, how do you put the performance on a screen? Or how do you, you know, build something that's going to represent whatever that is, and then provide us the words and soundtrack to that? Like, yeah. there's, there's so many alternative ways now to, to do things. Mm. You know, I, I couldn't even imagine. I'm only even 41 years old. I can't even. My my kid is 11 and knows an infinite amount more than I ever will about electronics and TikTok yeah. and things like that. Like, I don't. I barely know what a TikTok is. Like, Twitter is Twitter is about all I know. And right yeah, now, right now I don't even know if I know that. Yeah, so, so. it's changing. It's changing. It, it is, and it's it, it. I was talking to uh, Sarah Lee a few weeks ago. Um, great poet. And we were yeah. talking about that Tumblr era. So kind of like poems.com, like, Tumblr. you know, we all found each other somehow. Yeah. Like we all found each other on Tumblr at one point or on poems.com or an infinite other websites that we were doing. So yeah. like, we, you know, it's not, we'll find each other again. If Twitter blows up, like there's yeah. other places, luckily like Instagram and, you know, and TikTok and all those are alive and well. Um, but the community, I don't think will be, the, it'll be a very different looking community. Sure. But um, it always is, right? Yeah. yeah. Single one. I mean, it's, it's also, I've been writing about this for a while, like with the new spoken word book, because when I got to the New Eurekan, it was already quite polished. You know, it was a world famous poetry venue. Right. But you talk to people who knew it in the you know early 90s, they said Dude, there was no sign that said the New Eurekan. It was just a, a opening in a wall. <laughs> and you walk through it and people were reading poems or like the the ac was broken i mean it's, it's just so interesting yeah. to think about the way we arrive at these moments and spaces that feel like finished products right? well and do we do we consider zoom you know the pandemic performances on zoom yeah do we start to consider those as our you know main venues you know I, they sure. are, or are we you know touring is definitely a thing again Right. But are the people still willing as willing to go out to shows or are they, you know, are, like, are the, you know, and it's it'll be interesting to see in a year or two when things really kind of hopefully have, have all died down and everybody is doing everything again. Mm. It'll be interesting to see what space is made for poetry again. Like I know in Portland, yeah. there have been a couple new couple new open mics that have opened up that weren't there before. And so it's fun seeing that. And I love seeing yeah. all the youth, like all the youth, like poetry lit journals that are coming out are just wow. incredible there's so many right now and it's a good it's the good like 18 to you know 28 30 year old mm. uh it's there's a lot there um, that's fantastic yeah. that makes me so happy to hear yeah, yeah I mean, performing live again has been transformative for oh, me I, I didn't realize how much i missed it you know over the past two years just being away from it 
and then coming back to it and it's like oh yeah this makes me feel alive doing this yeah do you feel being a professor as well with that do you feel that uh how much of the how much of the stage performance do you bring to your classroom all of it <laughs> all of it i mean banter informs my pedagogy you know it always has like learning how to tell a joke how to improvise how to make an unfamiliar text come alive like that i can't imagine being a professor without having been a poet first and having been on the road you know because you also learn how to play a tough room yes. right like my first ever gig that i got through naca springfield college springfield massachusetts i was contracted to perform for 40 minutes in a dining hall they put a mic, a wireless mic and a microphone stand. I was in front of a subway and a Dunkin' Donuts, maybe 300 people in there. And they said, the, the poet, Joshua Bennett, and just walked away, no real intro. And this is after I'd done the White House, dude, you know? <laughs> so in my mind, I'm on a run, I'm doing college gigs, I'm getting good money, it's gonna and be- And play in a cafeteria. Yeah, <laughs> And but by the end of that set, right? And I ended with Tamara's Opus, the poem I performed at the White House. Right. 10 people had gotten up from the tables and had just gathered around, gathered around the microphone stand yeah. and were looking up at me, listening to every word. And they clapped at the end, you know? Nice. And that being my starting point, right? You couldn't script it better than that, right? Because right? the rest of the gigs, thankfully, were not like that, right? They were, you know, people actually had come out to see me perform and right. they were in cafes and auditoriums and lecture halls and things like this. But starting at that point and having to win the room over and not quitting halfway through, because I was like, I came all this way on a train and a bus and I'm getting my check. I left oceanography class for this, you know, like class was over, flew out of here and I, I came here. And so I'm really thankful for that. That was my training ground to eventually become a professor, right? If the lecture isn't going your way, you power through it, man. And you get to your spots and you also write uh, in advance to set yourself up for success, right? Like you you leave gaps for yourself to improvise. Yeah. That's at least what I do. Cause that's what a good set is, right? You have your, you know, your staple kind of jokes, your poems you go to, but you always leave yourself room to improvise and you do that through practice. So poetry. I, like I, I think uh I think Joel Leon um was talking to me about about things like that where you have to leave that space because the poem might not be the same poem you know, every time because you have yes. to leave room for at least some, you got to read the crowd. You got to know what yes. they're looking for. Yes. I love that. Yes. Um, as we kind of head toward the ending here, we always like to ask, who are you reading right now? Who are you really oh excited about? Who am I reading? I'm reading Linda Gregg. All right. The collection, all of its singing. I'm reading Christopher Gilbert, one of my favorite poets to ever live, Turning Into Dwelling. Those are two books that have been on my mind. What else? I just closed this installation at the New York Botanical Garden on a sort of Black nature poetry. And so, yeah, Black nature, this anthology uh, has been on my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm reading and, and rereading. Oh, one more. Can I give you one more book? Yeah, please. Yeah, Terrence Hayes introduced me to this Ooh. book years ago, Actual Air by David Berman. It's a stunning collection. So that's, that's what I'm reading right now, those four books. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I really appreciated the conversation. This was fun. Of course. Um, and I, I truly look forward to reading what's coming up next for you and sending people your direction. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, thank you so much for doing what you do and putting out the words that you put out. 
Uh, and I look forward to always following your work. Have oh, a great uh, honor and pleasure. Yeah, Thank you. The best in your students. You Thank too. you so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week.